Tortoise. Ammonium nitrate is used in fertilizers and improvised bombs. Detonating a single ton of the chemical compound can cause serious injury to anyone within half a kilometer. In late September 2015, counter-terrorism officers from the Metropolitan Police find three tons of it in northwest London. They discover the material in a raid on four properties, three businesses and one residential address. A raid that followed a long covert operation with MI5. The material hadn't been mixed to its more dangerous state and was stored in thousands of disposable ice packs, making it portable. The officers arrest a man in his 40s on suspicion of intending to commit an act of terrorism. Security officials briefed the then Prime Minister David Cameron and Home Secretary Theresa May about the find. They say that this plot was at an early stage. There was no specific target or plan for an imminent attack. There was no explosion. There was, in fact, complete silence. I'm Paul Caruana Galizia, and this is episode three of Iran's Hit Squads. Iranian plots on foreign soil are not in plain sight. Before I started reporting on this series, I was completely unaware of the extent of them. The find of enough ammonium nitrate to cause complete carnage was kept hidden from the public. There was total silence until the Sunday Telegraph reported what had happened, almost four years later, and despite resistance from British authorities. There's another thing about Iranian plots that makes them hard to trace. It outsources them to proxies, which provides deniability. They will have no problems using people who don't necessarily believe in their cause. Matthew Dunn is the former British spy who agreed to speak with me on this series. Is that a typically Iranian thing, the subcontracting in that way, or do other foreign intelligence agencies sometimes use it? I wouldn't say it's um, a typically Iranian trait. If anything, um, we all do the same as well. In, in Britain, as an intelligence officer myself, I might consider actually, okay, is there a, a third party, another organization or another entity that I might be able to use? I suppose what is somewhat unusual um, about the Iranian experience is that it seems to be almost overwhelmingly their modus operandi, as opposed to just one aspect of it. Some of the proxies used by Iran are surprising. We heard about the Eastern European criminal organization, Thieves in Law, in the last episode. Iran is also suspected of using an international heroin trafficker to organize assassinations of Iranian dissidents in Turkey and Romania. Naji Sharifi Zindashti, head of the Zindashti cartel that smuggles drugs across Europe and the Middle East. 
Iran has also, according to security sources, used the leader of the Hells Angels. The muscly Hells Angel, Ramin Yaktaparast, has a patch on his jacket which reads, Filthy Few, showing that he has killed or is willing to kill for the club. After German police identified him as a suspect in a brutal gangland murder, he fled to Tehran, where he has been posting on his socials videos of him frying eggs on the engine of a Lamborghini and donating food parcels to Iranian families. In Tehran, Yekta Parast was then tasked by the Quds Force, part of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, to organize shootings and attacks using Molotov cocktails on Jewish targets in Germany. The Quds Force specializes in military operations outside Iran, particularly the surveillance of Israeli officials and Jewish communities around the world, including in the UK. It's largely responsible for Iran's most important proxy. The main Iranian proxy has been identified by America as Hezbollah. Amir Hamidi had a 36-year U.S. government service, including work for the State Department, Drug Enforcement Agency, and the FBI. He spoke with me from his home in California. Which maintains a close link with the Al-Quds force and is the executioners of money laundering, member recruitment and training, weapons, drug trafficking, document forgeries, and even the accusation of minerals and raw materials likely to serve the Iranian nuclear arms program. Iran is also the leading state sponsor of terrorism. It's not just Americans who take this view on Hezbollah. The terrorist threat from Iran, and I, I include Hezbollah in this as part of the, their operational infrastructure, has been around for a very long time. I mean, the first terrorist attack on a Jewish... My name's Dave Rich, and I'm director of policy at the Community Security Trust, which is a charity that seeks to protect the Jewish community in the UK from terrorism, anti-Semitism and extremism. The, the threat from Iran as a state actor is potentially on a whole other level in terms of their, their capabilities. What has changed in the last few months is the way that the government and the police and security services in this country are talking about this threat and talking openly about Iranian operations to attack Iranian dissidents in the UK and to potentially target Israeli and Jewish people. The UK government recently revealed that Iran spied on Israeli and Jewish individuals in the UK in preparation for lethal operations. I understand that Jewish community buildings and synagogues were also surveillance targets. And we took that as an indication that the level of activity and the potentially acute nature of the threat has sharpened in terms of active efforts in this country. But the UK hasn't always been open about this threat, especially given how old it is. As early as the mid-1990s, Israel's intelligence agency Mossad 
estimated that Hezbollah had an extensive network among Iranian expatriates in London. It claimed the network was funded and directed by Iranian agents under diplomatic cover. It was Mossad that had tipped British officials off about the Northwest London ammonium nitrate discovery. It was just one of the storehouses, from Cyprus to New York and Thailand, that the Israelis have been tracking for years. It was part of a plan by Hezbollah to launch its own terrorist attacks around the world. But even when Hezbollah's operatives aren't working directly for Iran, the ammonium nitrate discovery shows that they appear to be protected by association with the Islamic Republic. UK authorities have said they never sought a prosecution over the ammonium nitrate discovery. They've said they just wanted to disrupt the plot and collect intelligence. They eventually released the 40-something-year-old unnamed man without charge. Some of this has to do with Iran's desire to export its revolution. The Iranian revolution was never intended to end at the borders of Iran. And in the months and years after the revolution in 1979, Iran set up entire agencies and departments dedicated to exporting that revolution. And so some of the earliest uh, activities in this regard, including helping to build and establish what became Lebanese Hezbollah, had to do with exporting the revolution. This is Matthew Levitt, a former FBI agent and now counterterrorism analyst, who's also worked for the U.S. Treasury and State Department. And one reason Iran engages in terrorism of its own and sponsors terrorism on the part of others, and indeed has built up a proxy network that here in the United States officials have come to refer to as the Iran Threat Network, or ITN, is that it is an effective, affordable, and relatively cost-free way of reaching well beyond its borders and boxing above its weight. Iran likes to do things wherever possible through means that are reasonably deniable. That doesn't mean that you don't know that they did it. It just means that they can reasonably deny it. It makes it more difficult for countries to justify attacking Iran directly or to build coalitions to do so. Uh, and finally, it enables Iran to um, fight and reach well beyond its borders through proxies. It doesn't have to lose that many Iranians to do this. Matthew Levitt and his colleagues have spent the past few years tracking Iran's external operations. It's assassination plots, abduction plots, surveillance operations for these types of things. So what we've developed now is a total data set of 166 different plots most of these are assassination plots, 71 of them. We have also what we describe as more general attacks, meaning we don't know that they were trying to assassinate individual. We have 76 surveillance plots, and they're not, that's not a separate number. There's definitely a significant Venn diagram overlap because just about every one of these assassinations or abductions will have surveillance going into it. 27 abduction plots. We're also tracking 23 cyber plots. The cyber issue is cyber stalking, collecting information for targeting purposes. The largest number for a population targeted is, is uh, Iranian dissidents overall at 76. Matthew Levitt includes journalists under dissidents in the data set. 
Uh, there are 12 cases where they were specifically targeting Jews as opposed to Israelis. 36 cases where they were targeting Israel or Israelis, Israeli diplomats. 25 cases where they were targeting diplomats of whatever country. And 34 cases where they were carrying out operations specifically targeting the West. And again, th th those are not all uh, individual plots. So within diplomats, for example, you know, you're, several years ago, there was the plot targeting Emirati, Israeli and American diplomats in the Emirati embassy in Africa. The data set is extraordinary. The first comprehensive overview of Iran's malign activity around the world. As I heard Matthew Levitt describe it, I wondered how Iran was able to do so much for so long. So one of the things we track in our data set is who does Iran dispatch to carry out these operations. Uh, Iran has dispatched proxies like Lebanese Hezbollah to do it on their own. They've had plenty of instances where they've sent a few of their own actual Iranian operatives with Lebanese Hezbollah operatives to, to assassinate people. Um, more recently, they have been hiring criminals, some of them low-level criminals without much experience. More recently also, they have been uh, dispatching some of their own operatives, including people under diplomatic cover. There were a few really interesting surprises that the data set revealed a strong preference for operating in the West, in North America, and in Western Europe in particular. You know, you're sitting in Europe, so just to give you a sense of it, of these 166, 74 of these plots are in Europe. Is it good? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> I am acting for you. You're you know. acting very well. Yeah. I like it. Hadi Korsandi is Iran's most famous expatriate satirist. I met him in a greasy spoon cafe in West London. He settled in the UK around 1980. It was the year that Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa against him for making a joke about the Prophet Muhammad. Hadi Korsandi, whose daughter Shapara Koshapi, is a famous British comedian herself, tells a joke about the day the Met's counter-terrorism police called. Scotland Yard called to warn me that they had received a tip about a terrorist plot against me. Their best advice was to never be on time for an appointment. A half-hour delay is an Iranian tradition. I always observed, I said. The yardman shook his head. <laughs> then God help you, Hadi, because your killers are Iranian too. As far as I can tell, Iran's plotting in the UK began with Hadi Korsandi in 1980. His fatwa predates Salman Rushdie's by almost a decade. I wanted to know the extent of Iran's plotting in the UK. If it started with Hadi Korsandi and has continued to the present, then there must be a lot we don't know. I wanted to know the specifics and not just the headline number. I trawled through British newspaper archives searching for reports of Iranian assassination 
or abduction plots from the 1979 Islamic Revolution up until the UK authorities became more public about the issue. In the newspaper archives, I found what appear to be 18 plots from Iran in the UK between 1979 and 2010, a greater number than that of known Russian plots in the UK, and a number that rises to 33 plots when you add the 15 plots recently revealed by MI5 and counter-terrorism police. Other targets included dissidents, a cartoonist, one of the Shah's former ministers, a famous actress, and a crowd of anti-Khomeini protesters in Hyde Park in December 1981. Across the 33 plots, there was nothing in the newspaper archives to suggest that any of the agents were charged. Iran started out using its own officials and students to execute the plots. An early plot against Salman Rushdie involved staff from the Iranian embassy in London. Another involved the London boss of Iran's state TV service. But Iran began using proxies by the late 1980s. By 1992, it was offering the IRA money and weapons in exchange for an assassination in London. There were bombs, shootings and stabbings. Most of them were unsuccessful. There have been eight deaths across all the plots. Four of them were of Iranian agents themselves, caused when their bombs accidentally detonated. As Matthew Levitt, the counter-terrorism analyst and former FBI agent, said, It says a lot about the Iranians' commitment and the fact that they're not deterred from carrying out these types of operations, even in Western countries. It also shows they're not 10 feet tall. One agent, Mustafa Mahmoud Maza, brought more than two kilos of explosives in his suitcase to London, intended for Salman Rushdie. But it blew Maza up as he prepared the bomb in his room at the Beverly House Hotel in Paddington. Radio Tehran called Maza a martyr. Counter-terrorism police said he was a member of Hezbollah. Some of Maza's associates were more successful. What follows was perhaps the most audacious London plot on record. What we have accomplished and what we are committed to is the end of the state of war between Jordan and Israel. It's Tuesday, 26th of July, 1994. In Washington, D.C., Israel's Prime Minister and the King of Jordan have just announced an official end to the 46-year war between their countries. They say they will begin working towards a formal peace agreement. In London, an expensively dressed middle-aged woman drives a grey Audi along Kensington High Street. Just after midday, she turns into Kensington Palace Gardens, a street that contains some of the most expensive properties in the capital and a number of foreign embassies. A security guard at the gated entrance to the street speaks briefly to the driver of the Audi and then raises the barrier to let her through. She turns a sharp left into number one Kensington Palace Gardens. She parks in a space in front of the private block of flats which is right next door to the Israeli embassy. As she walks away from her car, 
an Israeli security official becomes suspicious. He asks the security guard about the woman. The guard tells him that she is visiting someone at number one and will only be a few minutes. The Israeli official talks to a police officer stationed on the street. As the police officer runs a vehicle check on the woman's car, a bomb in the car explodes. A bomb made with some 14 kilos of Semtex, a powerful explosive that is hard to detect. 14 people are injured. The Israeli embassy is damaged. Shop windows on Kensington High Street are shattered. The woman disappears in the confusion. The following day, just after midnight, a red triumph with false number plates parks outside Balfour House in Finchley, North London. It's home to a charity, United Jewish Israel Appeal. A bomb in the car explodes. Six people are injured. The building is badly damaged. The UK never finds the woman in the Audi. But Mossad says it has. It never names her. Mossad says her husband was a member of a militant Palestinian liberation organisation, killed by Israelis in a shootout not long before the London bombings. It doesn't name her husband either. After his death, the woman joined a different organisation, Hezbollah. Mossad claims it had warned British security agencies about an imminent Hezbollah attack in London before the bombings. The British authorities deny this. Mossad says the woman was ultimately acting under orders from Department 15 of Iran's Ministry of Intelligence, which is responsible for planning a series of attacks overseas. Israel's Prime Minister castigates Iran for its hand in the attack. Iran's chief diplomat in London denies the allegation, saying, Iran wants no part in international terrorism, and that his embassy disassociates itself from any group wishing to perpetrate terror. Israel's Prime Minister and King Hussein of Jordan together claimed the London bombings had been designed to derail their plans for a formal peace agreement. One that would bolster their security against hostile neighbours like Iran. Iran has long used targeted attacks overseas as a foreign policy tool, but the degree to which it has done this wasn't clear until each plot was catalogued. I anticipated that whereas Iran would carry out operations in places that are more operationally challenging and more politically sensitive, like the West, it would um, refrain from doing so at particularly sensitive times, or at least in places that are particularly sensitive at a given time. As an FBI agent, Matthew Levitt worked in the aftermath of 9-11. He told me that it was after 9-11 that Iran and Hezbollah paused its plotting because they didn't want to get caught up in the war on terror. We started this episode with the discovery of three tons of ammonium nitrate in northwest London. Counterterrorism police and the MI5 seized it in late September 2015. It was just two months after the UK signed the JCPOA, an agreement 
that restricts Iran's nuclear program in exchange for sanctions relief. The other signatories were the EU, the four other permanent members of the UN Security Council, Germany and Iran. But the covert operation had begun earlier, months earlier. It had begun after Mossad sent in the tip that the stockpile belonged to Hezbollah, Iran's main proxy, a fact that, if disclosed, might have derailed the JCPOA talks. The UK managed to keep it secret until someone else derailed the JCPOA. I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. In 2018, Donald Trump pulled the US out of the JCPOA. In a few moments, I will sign a presidential memorandum to begin reinstating US nuclear sanctions on the Iranian regime. The author of The Art of the Deal said it didn't go far enough. He wanted to renegotiate another one. The JCPOA began falling apart within a year. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In February 2019, British MPs were set to vote on whether the government should extend its prescription of Hezbollah to include the organisation in its entirety. And not just its military wing. Proscription would mean that the government designates Hezbollah as a terrorist organisation. So supporting it, or being a member, becomes a criminal offence, which could carry a 10-year prison term. Late February 2019, was around the time that the Sunday Telegraph began its investigation into the Northwest London ammonium nitrate stockpile. The newspaper published its report three months later, but word of Hezbollah's threat seems to have reached MPs anyway. Hezbollah is a terrorist organisation. The military wing is already prescribed in this country, but there is frankly very little distinction between the military wing and the uh, so-called civilian wing. According to the UK's parliament and its government, Iran's main proxy is a terrorist organization. But what about the Iranian state itself? Clearly what the West is doing now is not deterring Iran from carrying out these operations, even at sensitive times and in sensitive places. Without meaning to be too pithy, at the end of the day, I think Iran carries out these operations because they can. 
because the cost is so low. Because when there has been a cost, it's been tolerable and temporary. We have already heard about some of the faces behind Iran's London plots, and now we know who commissions them. If we now know who these people are, then why is the UK not stopping them? In the next episode of Iran's Hit Squads... Do you feel safe in London? Yes and no. I feel safe because I'm in one of the safest places in the world, but at the same time, I'm not. Thanks for listening. New episodes will be released every Tuesday. You can get early access to each episode and ad-free listening by subscribing to Tortoise Plus on Apple Podcasts or joining Tortoise as a member, where you can access more of our reporting, live events and support our work for just £60. Just visit tortoisemedia.com slash hitsquads for this exclusive offer. If you enjoyed this series, we would really appreciate you rating it on the app and leaving a review. Your ratings and reviews help us at Tortoise to continue our in-depth reporting. This series is written and reported by me, Paul Carana Galizia. It's produced by Joanna Humphreys. The sound design and original theme is by Tom Kinsella. Artwork is by John Hill. The editor is Jasper Corbett. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.